listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So, Jeff, today I want to talk about the UPE. UPE? I know what UCE is now, but I don't know what UPE is. It's the Unified Podcast Engine. I just made it up. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to dissect the, the, the listener journey through our podcast. You want to do that with me? You want to go on a, want to go on a, on a buyer's journey with me? Double journey? Well, this is interesting. Yeah, I, I think I'd like to be the fly, the proverbial fly on the wall as you go down this journey. But Maybe I'll, I'll, fly, I'll fly off the wall and annoy you or something. Well, the problem with that is I, then I would be just talking to myself and you'd just be on the, the fly on the wall listening to me talk to myself, which might be uncomfortable. Or maybe not. I don't know. I'm joking. No, we're, we're, you know, I don't know about you, but when we did that episode with Jenna Pipchuk and Jeff Lowe from Smart Technologies, I've had a lot of people ask me about it, ask me what I think it means. How does it apply to our professional services firm? How does it apply to their firm? Not really prompted, just people who started asking me about it. So what I wanted to do today was just dig underneath that a little bit, because there's definitely, interesting as that podcast was, I, I loved it. I thought it was one of my favorite ones, but is, you know, it's definitely a different type of company, right? They sell a physical product, not a service. And so I think what I'd like to do today is let's wrestle with this concept of the unified commercial engine and how it would be applied and what it means to firms. So, and then we can do, you know, the podcast buyer's journey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like we're going to be doing some of that exercise you've talked about on other podcasts of developing our thinking and and thought leadership in real time. We may be because we don't know where we're starting and we have certainly don't know where we're ending up. (laughs) So it's like we're on on a bad road trip, right? Yeah. Okay, so my first question to you is, and I, th- I think you and I disagree on this, is, well, first off, we should set the stage, I suppose, for what the Unified Commercial Engine is for anybody who didn't listen to the episode. So maybe we should give a 30-second recap of that, or do we just point people back? I think it's worth pointing people back, but give, give a quick 20-second summary. Okay, so the high-level summary, as I take it, is Smart Technologies is the maker of, of, of smart boards, the things you see in your kids' classrooms. And three years ago, the sales and marketing leaders essentially blew up the sales and marketing organization and replaced it with a single entity they've called the Unified Commercial Engine that is really built against the customer's buying journey down to the level of they have functional pods that exist to enable customers at each phase of their journey. So rather than being a demand gen manager, you might be a leader inside of the learn pod or something along those lines. And it's been very successful for them. They've had a lot of positive outcomes from that. So my opening question to you is, do firms do this now? You know, firms are organized around the client, they always say, right? So don't firms do exactly what the Unified Commercial Engine describes already? I don't think they do organizationally at all. You might find consultants who are building relationships that might argue their relationship building style is built around the buyer's journey. But as we all know, that's not scalable. And I think it may be overrepresented or overstated. Yeah, I I 100% agree with you. I thought we were going to disagree on this one. I, I think most firms believe that they do this. 
They believe they're organized this way, but I don't believe that they really are. And the reason they believe they are is because they've subsumed marketing to a sales support function. So marketing is this like tuck under sales as sales support. And so the belief system is that marketing and sales are operating in lockstep, but that just is an atrophied marketing function. And you've pointed this out for so long that they are functionally distinct channels inside the firm. There's the marketing function, the sales or business development function, and the client delivery function. And they're, and they're very clearly siloed in most firms. And in fact, most firms struggle to get just get alignment between what they're trying to do, as you've also pointed out so many times. You know, there's not agreement on what the who the ideal client is and, and what the a quality lead looks like between marketing and sales. And of course, Jeff and Jenna sort of attacked that old problem head on and said, well, why are we arguing about alignment? Let's just blow it up and start fresh. So I I agree. I I don't think they're organized this way at all. I think to your point, and you've said this so many times, in fact, it's the the moment we met, you said, uh, you know, firms know why clients hire them. They don't know how. Mm -hmm. And that's the first thing you ever said 10 years ago. And I said, I want to know this guy. And that's what led to our podcast. <laughs> you're 100% right. I think you're still right. A decade later, I think you're still right. And I will, I will point the, the, the finger to the fact that I don't think they know how clients hire them at all before the moment a conversation occurs. Once a conversation occurs, they have a fuzzy sense. But before that, I don't think they really understand. I don't think they understand at all. They fall in love with their solution or practice. And, and I would argue that the way firms are organized is by practice. Even with the matrix, the dominant player is always going to be the practice. And I would think that's where the majority of the P&Ls sit. Maybe outside of that would be geography. But if they wanted to be more client-centric, the P&L would definitely sit, I think, more in an industry dimension of the matrix. But they are not organized around the buyer's journey. Marketing is clearly focused, I think, either on sales support, as you mentioned, or image marketing. Some do demand gen, but that really is a function of how strong thought leadership is and how viable or how strong that demand gen engine would be. And sales, whether that's a dedicated sales force or a consultant with a a nut to crack, and then you have client service delivery. And, and that's the way the majority of the firms, if they aren't organized, it's how they act. Maybe the question that we didn't actually ask ourselves in the, in the setup pre-call for this, should they do this? Would they be better off if they reorganized you know, along the lines of what Jenna and Jeff have done, where you know, you're not the head of marketing or the head of a practice? You're, you're responsible. Maybe the head of the practice has to be there, but you're responsible for the client's learning stage of their journey or the vetting stage of their journey or whatever buying map that you end up you know, designing coming out of this? I think it would be much better to be that way. The, the challenge, I think, in professional services, I don't know if this is an intellectual or a, a, a cultural issue or maybe a combination of the two. In smart technologies example, it's product-driven organization. Uh, And not product driven, but it is a product organization. They produce a product, right? And having a product is a fairly big equalizer across each of those functional areas in terms of their understanding of the product, what it does, how it works, how it's implemented and used. 
in professional services firms where you have this deep expertise in a very narrow discipline, it's really hard for marketing or sales to say that they have the same level of understanding of, of that given discipline. And that creates a tension where the consultant, accountant, lawyer sees himself as superior in, in understanding the client's needs and delivering against those needs. So that that's a tension that would make a unified commercial engine, I think, much harder in professional services because so much of the responsibility of the flip side of the buying cycle falls to you know, that consultant, lawyer, accountant, architect, whatever that professional may be. It's interesting, you know, where I thought you were going to go was the fact that a diversified firm has multiple practices that solve for multiple problems. And each one of those practices in theory has a little bit different buyer's journey. And sometimes they, inter- they, they, they overlap each other or, or they both come together to solve for the client's problem. Other times they don't. So it creates this really complicated you know, matrix of some kind that you're trying to sort through. It's funny, I've been talking to one client about this huge, huge firm, global firm. And that was kind of his takeaway is he's like, well, we, you know, I think the way that we would approach it is we'll, we'll pick a single business unit and just focus on that one business unit and, and try to do the discovery process to understand the buyer's journey for that business unit. And then once we've done that, we can decide, you know, where we go next, if it worked and how it went. And they're not approaching it as a, you know, organizational redesign initiative necessarily sort of the way that the smart technologies folks did, but more just trying to get a better understanding of of how clients really hire them for a specific area of their expertise in a more granular way than they have historically. You know, I I shared it with a client and this client is a, it's hard to nail down. They are system integrator, IT consultant, VAR, and managed service provider. I mean, they do so many different things. And that was one of their, their major challenges is how do you take that to market? And it's very difficult to take that to market, particularly in this case, because it was sales driven and sales just wanted a sale. You know, they were client centric because they wanted to serve whatever client need was there, right? (laughs) Oh, you want that? We'll take care of it. Oh, you want that? Yeah, we can do that too. You know, they're they're the classic, well, we don't know how we'll get it done, but we'll get it done because the client's services. Yeah. The client asked for it. There's whole businesses built around that. I actually read about this years ago. There's a company based in New York City that will move anything. So it doesn't matter what you're trying to move, where you're trying to move it, they will figure it out, even if it's the most obscure thing you could ever imagine. I was like, what a cool business that is. Like, hey, you need to move this five-ton thing across the desert? We'll figure it out. (laughs) Anyway, back to your point. I'm sorry. Yeah, but the you know the more visionary and disciplined dimensions of the firm wanted to move into the direction of unified commercial engine. To them, yeah. it made perfect logical sense if you know which clients you serve best and which value that they're buying. It makes perfect sense. But most firms, I don't think, exist that way. And they're always cranking out, as we've talked about around the performance envelope, you know, these new solutions and and practices that, to your point, have very different buyer's journeys. You know, if you're selling audit or the design of, you know, a parking garage, 
that's pretty basic buyer's journey, you know, complete with RFPs and and known solutions. Whereas if you're dealing with something much more nebulous, where there's just the pain and there's not a preset solution, there's a much different way of of buying that as well. You know, the other thing that came to mind as you were explaining that to me was one of the reasons a firm might not want to adopt this as you were talking through your example is just the inertia. It's almost like there's so much inertia built into a firm for these functions to exist the way they are. So the pain would have to be pretty considerable for you to say, we're going to reorganize around the buyer's journey in this way. Because if it's working pretty well, it's a pretty big lift to, to, to really redesign the entire org in this, in this way. If you take it to its extreme, and as Jenna pointed out, you don't, you don't have to. You don't have to necessarily redesign your whole organization. So I, I, let's pivot there, actually, because I know one of the things that you liked the most about this was just the buyer's journey. So let's just talk about maybe that. I don't know what we want to talk about as it relates to it. Hey, before we go there, Jason, you said something that I think was critical. Why would a firm want to do this? I think a firm would want to do this for two reasons. And I think both reasons were kind of manifest at at smart technologies. But the two reasons for doing this is you have a pain. Yeah. And something is not working. And, you know, they were, uh, smart technologies was really siloed and, and hard silos. They had a redundancy of effort and they had limited resources and they could see out into the market what competitors were doing, but they didn't have all those resources, all those specialized sales resources, for example, they talked about. And they realized that in the post, well, it wasn't post-COVID world at the at the time, but it was prescient that they did not have enough digital touch points in the way people were buying. So they didn't have an understanding or an alignment with how things had changed as organizations became more digitized. Yeah. So they they had a pain. So their well, their pain they had multi-dimensional pain is worth noting. It's not like the pain was we're not getting enough leads or we're not converting enough leads or something like real tactical. It was big pain, thorny pain, multi-dimensional. So hence the solution is is maybe a little radical because it's tackling all these dimensions at once. So yes. but what's Which the second mean, reason though? Sorry. So so the so the second reason is if you want to stay ahead of the competition. Yeah. Because everybody is aligned marketing, sales, client service delivery right now. And maybe that's collective wisdom. Maybe it's just conventional wisdom. But I think if you're going to stay out in front, you need to be pushing the envelope. I was laughing. as Maybe it's best practices in quotes, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> best practices is mediocrity, right? <laughs> so, and sometimes, anyway. That just means okay. doing it the way everybody else is doing it. Yes, exactly. Or the best companies are doing it. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you.
Now back to Jason and Jeff. As we were talking to, to Jenna and Jeff, I did get this sense that we were experiencing the future of sales and marketing and the future is now. That That's what you're going to see this largely look like five, 10 years out across almost all sales and marketing, that you'll see this type of transition over time, that maybe we're on the cusp of something big here. But let's talk about the buyer's journey. Because I know that you were really interested in that. That was one of your maybe favorite takeaways. So just, I don't know, I'll prompt you, <laughs> jump in. Yeah. I love this because you do need an organizing construct. They chose the buyer's journey and it's just intuitive. I mean, and if you want to be client centric, you have to align your organization with the buyer. It's just so simple and straightforward in that helping those buyers complete the jobs they need to buy to get the result they want. I laughed when they described it because I I momentarily felt really Silly, because as you know, I, I wrote an article years ago that I call the universe, the four universal stages of buying. And I've used that a lot to describe how I believe clients go through their journey to hire a firm. And, and I, I put a lot of work into that through the years in terms of how you map what that journey is against what parts of the organization support those phases and the things that they should be doing. But it never dawned on me to like basically blow up the back at the bottom half of that arc and replace it with this unified thing and and reframe the way those things are. And it sounds semantic to say, well, we have a pod that's focused on learning, but I actually don't really think it is because, you know, when you shift the conversation away from we need more leads to we have to help clients through their learning process, you've totally changed the way you look at the world. And there is some real power in that that probably didn't come out in the dialogue, but just getting people in this mode of how do I help clients at every phase of their journey, it comes back to our you know definition of modern selling. Modern selling is helping. Modern marketing is, is educating, right? So that was something that I found really interesting. Well, I, I think their buyer's journey was straightforward for a product firm. You know, it was learn, buy, install, adopt, and support. That makes perfect sense if you're buying a software product or some piece of technology. That language doesn't necessarily transfer cleanly to professional services, though. And I gave a little thought to, well, what would, what would professional services be? I don't think there's a, a simple answer. And for me, when, as I was doing it, I had trouble, <laughs> believe it or not, wanting to be as client-centric as possible is getting it into a client-centric language. I think yours does a really good job of that. Yeah, it falls short in the sense that I stop at the moment of of contract signing, right? So it's learn, vet, discuss, and hire. And so you need to close the loop on that. You have to go into delivery somehow. And I think you and I both struggle with, well, what what does a client call that? And 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 how how would we frame that that next phase? But yes, I agree. It's funny. One of our clients asked me to, or no, I was asked to do a, a quick video call with someone about this, and they pulled out some of Gartner's work on this. And what I found interesting about Gartner's work, and to a lesser extent, the stuff that that the the way that Smart Technologies framed it was, it felt sort of clinical and cold to me. You know, problem identification and solution exploration, like stuff, it just feels feels very cold. And something about consulting services 
where problems are mushy and complex and undefined and, and human makes me feel like the language needs to be more human. One question I have for you, one of our clients has been exploring doing this work. In fact, they were looking at a consulting firm that specialized in sort of buyer journey mapping. And one of the, the recommendations that firm made was, well, the worst thing you can do is get together a collection of smart people and just start talking about and thinking about what you think the hiring process is. The best thing you can do is, or the only thing you should do is, is really sit down and interview your clients about it. Where do you come down on that? When you think about this, is it something that we're going to hurt ourselves if we try to have a discussion about it ourselves and just postulate what those buying phases are? Or is, I don't, you know, I don't think at all. I believe when you sit down and you start putting yourself into the shoes of your client, nothing but good things come out of that. Now, could you be off target a little because you don't have or you don't have a complete understanding or you're bringing your own bias? Yes, you definitely could. But the exercise of asking the questions, what is the client feeling, thinking or doing at this point is an exercise in empathy. You can't go wrong with that. And it'll open up holes. And if you're honest with yourself saying, you know, I honestly don't know what they feel. Here's what I would feel, I think. And then you could go clarify that. It definitely, I think one of the shortfalls of that type of process of, of us just having a conversation with ourselves is one, as you say, our sample is too small. <laughs> it's just our, our clients. I just absolutely love that. I just absolutely love that. Thank you. The second thing is most professional services, because they, they don't completely understand the buyer's journey, I think always, always underestimate who their competitors are and who the alternatives their potential buyers are looking at. Because there's a lot of different ways to solve a problem and there's a different perspective on how to attack that problem. And most firms think that they're just competing against other accounting firms or they're just competing against other, you know, architectural firms or whatever or yeah. yeah, whatever. And sometimes that's true because the problem is so narrow. Yes, this is a legal problem that needs to be solved. But a lot of times when we're talking about business problems, they are much broader in terms of who can attack them. I wanted to ask you another question. How many times in your career have you asked a client, who are your key competitors? And they say, well, really, nobody really does what we do. So our biggest competitor <laughs> is the client doing it themselves. So self-delivery. I mean, I bet you I've heard that more times than I've heard direct competitors. And you wonder how true could that really be? There's really nobody else on the planet that can do this? Like that can't possible be possible, right? So I'm just curious if you've bumped into that too. Oh my gosh, I bump into that all the time. And there's even a, a stronger flip side to that, that firms don't consider the fact that people could do it themselves oh, yeah. or they discount or they really discount the, the firm's ability to do it as well as they do it. But you know what's what's funny? I'm reading Bob Bidet's book on thought leadership again. Yeah. And so much of the thought leadership that comes out is primary research looking at how companies are actually doing something. So the fact is 
the companies that do it on their own often set the tone ahead of the consulting firms. So it's really important to, I think, really pay attention to the fact that, yes, these firms have smart people and they can do this stuff on their own and do it really well. This was in some of Source for Consulting's research years ago, and they essentially found, and I don't I won't recall the data, but that if a firm produces thought leadership and the, the client tries to self-implement it and then struggles to self-implement it, the likelihood that they will then hire the firm goes up dramatically. So it's actually in your best interests for the client to try to, try to implement the thinking that comes out of it because usually it, whatever you're writing about is probably pretty hard. And when it doesn't go so well, then they, they ask for some help. All right. So we're, we're coming up on time here. I do this almost every podcast. I'm a broken record. Wayne, why don't you just record this on a loop and we can just replay it every time and I don't even have to say anything. So Jeff, final, maybe bad joke, final thoughts. Like what is one thing that we haven't talked about that you just would really like to share that you took away from the episode? Oh, gosh. There were characteristics of the approach that I absolutely loved. One is the concept of pods, the bringing together around the buyer's stage and bringing the different disciplines into it to achieve that buying stage's desired outcome. I absolutely loved the concept of, of pods. Associated with that, the Uber metrics of saying to that buying stage pod, what's the one metric you're trying to move that reflects your performance in this area? I love the simplicity that comes with, with that and the alignment that you can get out of it. I'm not so naive to believe that one metric does it in total, but in terms of reporting and moving the ball, taking the time to think through what that Uber metric is for that given area, I think would unleash a lot, a lot of positive thinking. And then the, the other part related to the pods is the transparency of the budgeting. Hmm. They knock down those silos of, you know, we're spending this on marketing or we're spending this on sales related stuff, whether that's events or dinners or SEO, all those things that, you know, sales and marketing, you know, belittle the other for, for actually spending dollars on. I like that. And I, I do think that's the way budgeting should be done. Yeah. It's funny. I thought you were going to talk about Jenna's comments about getting everyone to have a more complete understanding of the commercial engine. Because I know you really liked that comment. We talked about it uh, in, in setting this up. So in that importance of just understanding the business. How does the business make money? How does it work? How do our clients' businesses work? And how frequently marketers in particular, and even I would argue a lot of salespeople just don't do. All right, we're going to take this to wrap. I guess we're going to have to do the unified podcast engine another time. It's a shame we didn't get time to... to I'm sure listeners would have really enjoyed our discovery process on how the podcasts get made. No, they really don't. So good digital radio. We'll talk to you next week. See you, buddy. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.